Today we have Ivan Vian on the show. Ever wonder what life is like for a military pilot after the military? Ivan, a 20-year veteran as a military pilot, shares his journey on transitioning from the air to land, securing financial freedom through real estate investing and building wealth in both good and tough economic conditions. Discover how he was able to successfully transition and make it big by thinking big. Listen and learn. So here's a question for you. What's your why? It could be to find financial freedom. It could be to add new streams of income. It could be to save taxes. You may want to become an active investor or you may want to invest passively. Either way, you need to make a decision and then take action. Your first action can be to educate yourself. Go to join.darrenbatchelder.com, sign up and start your journey. Now, on to the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Ivan before we start the show. Ivan lives in Oklahoma. He is a 20-year veteran in the military. He was looking for a better way to build wealth for his family, and he found it in multifamily real estate investing. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Ivan Vian. Ivan, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. Pleasure to be here. Excited to get to it. Absolutely. So a little bit on how uh, we know each other. We're both part of the same uh, multifamily mentorship group, the Brad Sumrock Group, uh, based in Dallas. And I had uh, Ivan's partner, Tariq Sitar, on the show, episode 133, and interested to hear Ivan's take on, um, you know, what they've been up to and and the split on roles, because each party brings a different role to, to an organization. So with that, can you share a little bit on how many properties and how many units you're currently invested in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me personally, uh, see on the on the active side, GP side, about a thousand doors. On the passive side, I want to say around twenty five hundred doors. Yeah, so that's that's a lot, man. <laughs> you've been you've been active. So maybe a little uh, info on your background and kind of how you got into the whole real estate game. Absolutely. So my background, uh, twenty year Air Force vet, uh, spent twenty years uh, flying the B one bomber. Thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, you know, I got I got involved in real estate because it first started off with a bad investment. Uh, when I was in college, they preached the really? mutual fund thing, and they said, "Hey, you know, you got to invest in mutual funds." So I took this twenty one thousand dollar loan that I was getting for like four percent. I was going to put it in the stock market, make ten percent return, and keep the difference. Well, that twenty one thousand dollar investment went to zero overnight, literally. After did I it really? Yeah. Went to zero? Man, it, it, that's when 2001, everything just tanked. Remember that time frame? Oh, everything just tanked. And I was disheartened like a dagger to the heart. And I said, listen, I did everything you guys told me. And now this is the result I get. And, 
and it was a loan. So I was stuck with a $440 monthly payment on a $35,000 annual salary as a second lieutenant paying off that loan. So every month it just hurt me a little bit more and more and more. And I said, there's got to be a better way to put your hard earned money to work for you. Right. And that's when I started getting interested in real estate. And I said, Oh, uh, this is what I, what I want to do. And I word got out and, uh, we got relocated my family and I to, uh, Abilene, Texas, and then I'll stand with my mother-in-law for a little bit. And she said, hey, there's this lady down the street going through a divorce, looking to sell her house. You should go down and see what you can do. And uh, honestly, I didn't put much thought to it. I dropped everything I was doing, walked out the door, and went down, knocked on her door. And long story short, I bought that house for $33,000 and uh, rented for about eight fifty. dollars And after it was all said and done, I was collecting about $300 a month in passive income, which is a lot better than that $21,000 investment I I did many years before that. I was like, there is something to this real estate game. And that's when I got my first taste of this game and, and kind of scaled all the way up from there, starting at that point. It's crazy. Like, you know, you started by saying that you're a GP in a thousand units, you're an LP in 2,500, but it all started with buying a $33,000 house. $33,000 house. It's uh, quite a ride. It, uh, I remember I did some reflection here a little back, a little while ago, and thirty-three thousand dollar house in two thousand eight, two thousand twenty-one. I bought a thirty-three million dollar apartment in Salt Lake City, so it's been quite a ride, and uh, definitely look forward to keep doing this. That's that's crazy. Uh, that's what I tell people is like, look, at some point, you know, everybody had their first investment. You know, if you get into the game. You know, it can be intimidating sometimes when you're just trying to get in and you hear people have a thousand doors, two thousand doors, three thousand doors. But everybody started with their first, you know. So, exactly. um, so what, your your background was a vet. You got into that that thirty three thousand dollars single family house, and then you never looked back. You were re- all in real estate from that point on. You know, I literally was. I really, I just, I, I just set my. I really wanted just to be an entrepreneur and listen, being in the military was a great experience, great career. and got to do a lot of cool things, but there's a lot of downside too. You're a salary paid worker. They work your tail off. Actually, the more you work as a salary paid worker, the less your hourly rate is if you do the math. And I was like, I got to find a better way to convert my time into money. And, and I learned about this real estate game. And so um, this is kind of a takeaway here is that I had to make a career decision that do I want to keep pursuing this military career and shoot for this, shoot for the stars? And maybe someday if I'm lucky, be a Colonel general, or do I want to maybe stay a mid-level kind of guy, use that extra time, go over here and pursue a real estate game. And then I I decided obviously the real estate game and uh, never looked back. And I just kept going and going and going, but you know, there's a lot of ups and downs, like anything, any cycle, any market, a lot of challenges you experience. I mean, Right after that $33,000 deal, I went into the whole $80,000 in debt on my second deal. Come on. <laughs> Which, did you really? So it wasn't, it, it wasn't all roses. No, no. Come on now. Come no, on. That's what <laughs> most people preach, right? I mean, well, like the uh, last six years has been. Not me. Per- I don't preach that. You don't? I'll be real about it. I went in debt. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? Crazy story. So uh, I'm, I got the real estate bug and... Uh, my wife, when I bought the first house, pregnant with our first child, child's born, we're at the hospital. We rush out the door to go to the hospital. So she said, hey, I need you to go back home and get the bag, the 
the bag. So I right. had to go the back ba- home. The bag's the bag. been packed for a while. Bag's been packed. Right. So I'm back home get to get the bag. I'm stepping out the front door and I look to the left. I was like, oh yeah, there's this banded home next to me with these, uh, this plywood up all over the windows. What's going on there? And I was like, I have a few more minutes. <laughs> Don't do this first time, Dad. Trust me. Don't do this. But I have a few more minutes. I said, let me see if I can figure out who this guy is that owns this thing. I got on the tax hall real quick, realized he lived down the street. I was like, I'm going to go to his house. I went down to his house, knocked on his door. This big burly man walked to the front door with his shirt off. He's like, can I help you? What do you want? I was like, dude, I'm looking at your house, looking to buy. He's like, step inside. You go up this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, these stairs to his attic. I mean, there's like one light, you know, in the attic. And he's like basically showing me on the desk how much he owes to get out of that deal. I said, I'll buy it. <laughs> Just like that. It was dumb. I said, I'll buy it. I didn't understand comps. I got lucky in the first one, right? I thought, right. I, was, right? I didn't understand comps. I didn't do rental stuff. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just said, I'll buy it. I'll find a way to buy it. I bought it. And then basically, long story short, I over rehabbed it, took it down the studs, brought it back up. To get through the rehab project, I ran out of money. I had to ask mom for help. I, I uh, filled up my credit cards, and now I'm stuck with a $80,000 bill to, to pay off And uh, as a captain. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons, right? Learned yeah. about the power of mentorship. Find someone who's been there, done that. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just do what they do step by step, and you'll most likely succeed yourself. I learned about how it's good to bring in other advisory people into your team, get their perspectives. It's obviously learn about due diligence, how it's so important to do diligence. And these skills that I learned at that point in time or any of the skills you can apply to any type of business, really, right? And so uh, I spent a lot of time basically analyzing all the mistakes I made. And it was very frustrating because 2008, 2009, everything crashed. And I, I remember to this day living in Abilene, Texas. I was listening to Lifestyles Unlimited radio show with Dale Wamsley. And he was like... Yeah, I'm buying these apartments for thirty thousand a door, and I was like fifteen thousand a door, and I was like, gotta be kidding me, man! It's like, but I have no money, <laughs> right? I'll get in the game, you know, and so, but you know, listen, it caused me to regroup, reset, and refocus, and uh, I picked up my, I licked up my wounds, and I said, listen, I'm gonna start over. I got a job in Oklahoma City, and that's when everything changed. I had some money in my pocket, went out, started buying some homes. Ran out of money, got my broker's license to sell some homes to make extra money. That's when I met my partner, Tariq. Um, that was a great experience. I ended up selling about 99 houses in two years as an investor realtor. Holy cow. On my lunch breaks, I was peeling off these little little house, uh, little homes around the base. It was a great rental market at the time. Still selling for around 40000 bucks a pop. Tariq bought about 45 of those, 99. And I, that's when I got to know Tariq really well. To, to sell 45 houses, you have to literally see him every day and you're showing him about 600 houses over the, that course of, of time of two years. And, and uh, that's when we started talking about multifamily. And I remember in 2016, it was like, these deals aren't working out anymore. <laughs> and I was like- The single family homes weren't single working. Single family deals aren't working. I was like, Tariq, we need, we need, to, go to, we need to go down to Dallas and, and learn about this multifamily stuff. There's this guy named Brad Sumrock putting on a two-day event. Let's go check it out. He said, oh, let's go. And so we went down to a two-day event and, and sat through that thing. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And after sitting through that two-day event and, and we signed up for their course and, and never looked back since, right? And so fast forward now, you know, I mean, a lot of things happen in there, but basically that's when we started Anthem Capital. We've done about 3,000 doors. We've bought 19 deals. We've sold 14. 
Uh, we raised around 90 million and, and, and realized about a 27% average annualized return. And uh, that was a lot right there, man. Where we are today. <laughs> that That's a lot. Holy cow. And, you know, when you went in the hole, you didn't like put your tail between your legs and like go the other way. Like, why, why didn't you do that? A lot of people are going to give up. Like, you know, like anything else, you, like even right now, you got to have a bulldog, bulldog mentality. Imagine a ball around a, a tether ball and that, that bulldog wants to bite on that ball and, and don't let go. And uh, I just set my sights and I know I, I just knew what I wanted, you know, I, and a lot of that was, you know, here I am in the military and a lot of it is just understanding of the power of having goals in life. I remember being a little kid and staring at these pictures on the wall saying someday I want to be a pilot and fast forward, I remember being 35 and I was looking around in the air and I was like, oh my God, I'm here. I'm, I'm a pilot. I made it, you know? And I was like, well, now what? <laughs> and I was like, well, I want to do multifamily, right? And, uh, you know, listen, I honestly, I didn't have the belief. I didn't have the, the mindset to believe in myself. I really didn't think I was capable. And so I, I took the single family route. I was going to these lifestyle unlimited meetings. I would listen to other two day events. And I was like, that's what those rich guys do. Right. And, and I didn't see myself as a, as a rich guy, so to speak. So, um, I had to go on some personal, you know, development journeys myself to kind of get my mind, mindset, right. Myself, right. In order to be able to be effective in this space, which is the, the right, I'm glad because I, um, I've been able to grow as, as a result. And uh, that's, so that's part of that, right? And, and I think a lot of it has to come to just knowing your why, knowing your why. And a lot of, you know, a lot of my influence in the entrepreneur world is honestly just looking at my mom uh, and, and her background. I mean, my mom, bless her heart, I mean, she, she grew up in the aftermath of the Korean War, uh, didn't have an opportunity to get a formal education. She barely graduated, was allowed to barely graduate the eighth grade. Um, she always wanted to be a business person, businesswoman herself. Came here. Was she? To the US. Was she? Oh, was she in the U.S. or was she in Korea? Came here to the U.S. My dad was in the army. Okay, and uh, met my mom over there and brought her back. And uh, she came here to the U.S. and worked worked really hard. She's very good worker, and uh, she just always wanted to have her own business. And when she was in her forties, she bought a grocery store called the Neighborhood Market in Kaiser, Oregon. And I saw her take that store from shambles to turn it into a beautiful diamond over the course of 27 years of operating that store and not only make an impact in my life, impact on our family's life, but impact in the surrounding community. And that, that to me was a lot of my inspiration, I believe. Uh, I think subconsciously it's just kind of always been there growing up as a kid. I mean, can you imagine being a kid mopping the floors and counting the cans and counting the inventory and then seeing your mom at the cash register machine every night counting how much money she made. I still remember it was 900 some bucks a day was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was also a huge role model for you. I mean, she taught you hard work. She taught you uh, about doing your own thing. She taught you, um, you know, look, when I don't know what she ended up doing with her grocery store, but, you know, if you own a business or you own real estate, or you own an asset, you can sell it at an appreciated value at some point That's where it. you can't do that if you're a worker. You know, if you work as an employee somewhere, the minute you leave, your income goes away. And you don't have anything to sell. That's it. So That's did she, what does she do? Does she, does she still have that? She, she, she operated that store for 27 years. Um, 
and eventually retired in 2018, 2018. And I, uh, I remember the day I was. I Did she sell the, the store? Sell the, sold the business and uh, <laughs> speaking of real estate investment, kept the building and, and took back a lease. And Did she really? <laughs> nice, nice. So you taught her a little lesson there. Yeah, so. um, no, that's fantastic. A few things that you said is, you know, you knew what you wanted, you know, bulldog mentality, um, you had goals. That, I think, is, is key for anybody that I've interviewed that's been successful is that, you know, they're determined to, they, they can visualize where they want to go and they're determined to get there. You know, it's the people that, you know, they don't even know. There's so many people in this, in this world that they don't even know where, what they want, you know. They know they want something different, but they don't know what it is. And they're not willing to take the time to actually think about it and then document it and then take action to, to go get, go after it. So I applaud you for doing that. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of people that, you know, may have taken a chance and when they hit that second one yeah. and you were 80 in the hole, you know, may have gone the other way. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that, that experience taught me that, right. And like literally if you know what you want and you show up every day to play ball, give it all you got, you can literally become, I mean, it's not, cliche it's real you can literally do anything you want right but and another so, thing that you said that i liked is that yeah. you know there's ups and downs because sometimes you know what you want but like it doesn't all happen in a straight line like nice smooth sailing there there are days where you may not want to do what you need to do you know you need to do it but you don't necessarily want to 100 percent, you know and listen i we all go through challenges. I'm going through challenges now. That's life. That's real. Um, but, but the challenges I'm facing today are I'd rather take these and the challenges I had to deal with in the military working 16 hour days and being gone for six months at a time. So absolutely. I'm, I'm doing okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Hey, share, um, the different roles that you and Tariq play, yeah. you, you know, you gave a little background on how you guys, came about um, to get to know each other and how you partnered up. But, you know, in the company, in your company, Anthem Capital, you know, what are the different roles and what do you play? Absolutely. So it kind of happened naturally. Uh, Tariq took on the acquisition piece when he first got started. Why? Because I had a, had a job. And this is a takeaway for people who have jobs. Partner with the right people, complement your skill set, and then create some division of duties. And it was a natural fit for Tariq to take on the acquisition piece where he is working with the lawyers, brokers, lenders, et cetera, to get these deals across the finish line. So l let me jump in there a little bit, too, is that and I don't know the answer to this, but it sounds like did Tariq have more capital to bring to, to deals also? Yes. <laughs> so that's something that's important for listeners to understand is that, you know, look, there are people out there that want to hustle but they don't have the capital. And then there's other people that, and I'm not saying Tariq was this guy, but there are other people that they have the experience, but they're, you know, they're, they don't, and they have the capital, but they want somebody else to go do the hustle. You know, so there, there is an opportunity for everybody, but you have to get out there and, and tell people, you know, your skill set, the value you bring, and try to find somebody that complements that. So... All right, I cut you off. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And 
Um, it, it was, honestly, it was, that was another godsend moment. It was like, man, the perfect partner, you know? And, and so, you know, we still work together acquisition side, but again, if I'm flying in my airplane, I can't be talking to people. So that's where you filled in the gaps. So we get the deals across the finish line. Then that's when I stepped in, used my military experience and background, you know, in, in the flying world, you always start with the end goal, which is a target, right? And you work backwards and you develop a plan to hit that target. And that's how I kind of approach the multifamily asset management arena. And that's my primary role is I'm up asset manager. I oversee the operations where I'm making sure these properties are moving forward to hit the target. And what is that target? Primarily is in order to meet or exceed or project investor returns that we advertise to our investors. Everything else comes after that. So we have to manage the asset, manage the team, manage the, the cash, uh, on all these other functions in order to make sure we meet or exceed the projected investor returns. So that's my primary role uh, in this company. And we have since expanded out and found other people to come under and implement a lot of the things that we have learned over the years uh, and allowed us to be able to continue to expand and grow. Now that's huge. Um, you know, the, the role of acquisitions and investor relations and bringing in investors and deals with front-facing kind of role um you know may have been the you know, more sexy role in the past but everybody that i talk to says the next five ten years are all about asset management all about operations 100%. And that's where I've been camping out since day one, what I've been preaching since day one. About time to get our chance, man. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to go buy a deal over here. It's going to go up in value. I'm like, you sure? Come on now. You know? So, but yeah, exactly. This, this is, this is where it's at. I mean, we're in, we face headwinds now, right? So talk about some of the, you know, um, the challenges on the asset management side and, you know, how you guys overcome yeah. some of those challenges. Yeah, the first challenge is, right, so COVID created this labor shortage scenario as well as material shortage scenario. We're used to underwriting deals, say, 4 to 5K per unit to, uh, for, for rehab, for, in, for interior units. That easily uh, doubled or almost two and a half times went greater. So my per unit cost went 4 to 5 up to 10, 12, 15 per unit on some unit floor plans. And that squeezes out the underwriting model. So that's one. Secondly, you don't have enough people to, to operate these properties. How are you gonna be able to rehab them, right? And I'll share some examples how we were able to get it done. And, and when you're underwriting these deals, you know, back in 2021, 20, the market started cooking up and we were using kind of historical numbers, honestly, when we should have been looking at what the impact of COVID is going to have on future costs, as smart as we all are, we still miss that, yeah. honestly, right? right? Sure. And so we, we underwrite to a certain number, say 8K per door, ended up being 12K per door. Now you have a gap. Now you have to reallocate your rehab plan or reallocate the, the buckets within your rehab plan and still to find a way to get the job done. Then we go into these major municipalities like Salt Lake City, where it's a booming market, it's growing. So guess what? There's even more competition for good labor. So that labor cost goes up even more. And you may get someone on site 
but they're going to go over here and make 10 bucks more an hour. Why would they mess around with your property when they can go work for a huge development company and make even more? Sure. And so I had to go through some iterations of uh, construction companies and I'm having to figure out how to deal with rising material costs and timing issues where you have cabinets taking three months, countertops taking three, four months, windows taking six months. If you remember in the beginning of COVID, during COVID and those, those timelines have come in. And so you really had to really refine your skill sets here and your processes, I should say, to get everything to sync up. For example, we would do a 90 day renewal notice and we want the answers to come in 60 days prior to the term um, end of the lease. That 60 day window then gives us enough time to project the materials that we need to go out and get if we didn't have them on supply already. So we have enough lead time to get them on site to not create any bottlenecking or stop gaps in overall operation. So that's that's in the case of somebody that's that's coming due in a classic unit that you plan to renovate. Correct. And so we have enough advance notice to build in enough lead time to order the materials. Sure. Now on the labor side, now don't go ask me for this number here, but <laughs> what I was able to finally figure out how to do, which this is now my blueprint, what I'm sticking to, is uh, I have this friend who's uh, Ukrainian and he's tied to a lot of the refugee efforts that was going on in Ukraine at the time. And he said, listen, I can help you. I have people coming from Ukraine. The, the U.S. government's allowing them to come into the country fast track. These are hardworking, good workers. They will come and live on your property and work uh, sun up to sundown. And really, it's longer than that because it's winter wasn't as light as long. So seven to seven, for example. So these workers came on site. I had about seven workers. They're not being distracted with any other projects. You know, you got GCs. Yeah, they, have, they come and do a little bit here and they go over here and do it. And then it, it slows down and creates friction. They came on my property and all they do is focus on my property. My productivity 2x oh. and my cost decreased by 15%. And I was able to deliver, say, 10 to 12 full rehabs per month. I was like one unit per month, <laughs> no units per month for a little bit there, fired those contractors, and my productivity just went up through the roof. And I was able to get my rehab project done uh, in about two and a half months. And they're, they're, you know, it was from a September to December time frame after going through that, some of those challenges in the beginning. And so... Um, Moving forward, that's that's the plan. And and we also brought in an in-house construction manager, and that was absolutely key. You gotta have someone there. Any area you buy a property, make sure someone is there to crack the whip and oversee the operation, ensure quality control, ensure the down to the minutiae level of all the line items on that invoice were per what the estimate was in the beginning that they didn't sneak in some additional charges, like that kind of level of detail and oversight you need in order to tightly manage these budgets and these projects, given the very narrow window that we have today, right? So a lot of the, the keys to success moving forward is understanding those costs, managing those numbers tightly, but execution is so important. We don't talk about this execution piece. How are you actually gonna rehab 10 units? Who on your team is qualified or experienced to be able to see that plan follow through? 
I think it's so easy to put numbers on a piece of paper, but thinking through what that looks like Absolutely. is a whole other I mean, level of conversation you need to have, right? Because on the multifamily side, like you have an on-site leasing person, you have on-site maintenance, but the maintenance per- personnel, they're there to, you know, fix st- stuff that's happening with the tenants, but they're not, they could do some of the work in on the turns, but they're not going to do a full rehab. So... You know, who are you going to get to do that? And how are you going to make that be an efficient process? Bingo. Exactly right. Because And you don't want maintenance doing full rehab because it's bogged down the system. You got to be looking at your work orders and your work orders directly tied to your retention. Right. <laughs> and your renewal rates. The satisfaction right? of the existing tenants. Exactly. And so, and another um, anecdotal story in this Salt Lake City project, we had maintenance labor challenges no one wanted to be a maintenance worker on a property management company i had one guy there and he left for electrical company making 10 bucks more an hour i'm like kind of makes sense that's the labor market we cannot offer those type of labor rates in in our budgets on these class c assets right Right. i think we all would agree to that if there's a magic formula a way to get around that please let me know i haven't figured it out no and finding got you know maintenance people that have the skill sets, like, you know, can they fix ACs? Like, the, there's so many maintenance, you know, guys that will come in, but then all of a sudden they can't do a lot of the work. They have to learn it, you know? You still, and you still have to outsource it. And, and exactly, you're not efficiently using your manpower. But right. so our work orders went from 5, 7, 10, 50, 60, 70. Holy cow. It got ugly. It got ugly for a little bit there. But what we did is we found two maintenance guys. And a lot of it is you got to know about workload and not bogging down your people and overloading them and creating this internal friction. The morale weakens and they just leave. They don't show up the next day because they hate working there. Like you have to manage that, right? And so, but what we did is we brought all the make readies and full rentals all under our construction team so that the, the, the maintenance guys can just focus on those small work orders and that worked like a charm. We went from 70 down to seven oh, in like awesome. two and a half months and knocked them all out. And that allowed us to be able to continue to bring up our occupancy as a result and maintain our occupancy because of the retention that took place. Yeah, I mean, so that's, you know, retention is so, 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 so important because if somebody leaves, then you have to clean the, spend money to turn that unit whether it's a rehab unit and you have to clean it and maybe repaint it and maybe resurface the countertop. In addition, that tenant is not going to go tell their brother, their sister, their mother, their aunt, their uncle, their friend to come live there if they're planning on leaving. So you, it has a, you know, a double-edged sword. You really got to take care of the, of, of the existing tenants and make it a community that they want to live in. hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that, touchy-feely side of this business you can't it's hard to underwrite but you know you gotta you gotta address those things right you have to build a community of people and build a culture of people and that's where asset manager not i hate the word manager was really above that is a different tier you're really a leader of people you're in charge of this program this project and people are looking up to you for direction so you have to be having that awareness and that perspective, that mindset going into these, into these projects. And, and, you know, I'll touch on this a little bit on community. So I really believe in creating community and I, we preach this, we go to onsite meetings, we talk about it on our weekly calls, et cetera. So that's very important. But going back to my mom's story, 
how my mom not only made a difference in her store, but I saw how she able to she was able to use her store to make a difference in the surrounding community. And mm. that inspired me and gave me the idea how now we can take on some of that responsibility, self-induced rather, but I want to find a way to use my local part apartments to make a difference in the surrounding community. So we started our own foundation called Anthem Impact Foundation. Awesome. Anthem Impact Foundation, what that does, that identifies key star tenants who are already making a difference in the surrounding community by them volunteering around the community. And then we go to those nonprofit organizations they are already volunteering at, and we make a donation to that nonprofit organization to further their cause. But what that does, it creates a ripple effect in the community. And what you find is when you invest in the surrounding community, then that community then in turn invests back in you, in your community, in your property, and what you're trying to build wherever you are. So give an example. How do they contribute back? I have an idea, but I want, I want to hear how it's played out. It's, 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 um, it's not direct. It's indirect, right? And so we had a gentleman who, um, he's a chef, and he would have local sushi making courses and classes on site. He would also go and volunteer at the Utah Food Bank. And so we wanted to recognize that and we donated to Utah Food Bank, right? But then the Utah Food Bank then has, we have people on, on our property who need food. Right. <laughs> and hungry. So like Thanksgiving time, they would come and donate food back to our property. That, that's no, that's, that's fantastic. I've, I've heard other, other uh, apartment owners that will um, partner with local charities to maybe bring... Um, you know, school supplies for, for kids and, you know, backpacks, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's, you know, really going above and beyond that just providing a yeah. clean and, and fun place to live. Yeah. Now, our property management company has a, a program called Urban Village Program, and that's exactly what that does. They focus on the community on-site level, doing the things you just explained, and as well as giving financial classes and other type of self-help classes, that, that type of thing. So let's switch gears a little bit. Yep. Now we've, we've got a lot of stuff going on right now in the, <laughs> with the economy, with the apartment world, everything. So let's start with just, hey, all these recession discussions. You know, if you've turned on any kind of news, it's like we're either in a recession or a big recession's coming, or maybe there'll be a soft landing, but maybe there won't. Like, how do apartments, in your mind, react in recessionary time? Right. So, in apartments in recessionary time, first of all, inflationary time, a great place to be because your cash in the bank isn't earning any money. You want to put an apartment when you have an appreciation, appreciating asset in which as the revenues go up, rent bumps go, you know, continue to um, happen, your revenues go up, your, your, the value of your, your cash investment goes up over time. So... Uh, there's that, that that happens. And then recessionary times, listen, I mean, maybe the rent bumps slow down, but you have to look at the macroeconomics, microeconomics, any of these submarkets, and you have to, one, look at the supply and demand imbalance. There's always going to be a demand for multifamily living, especially in workforce housing. People need a place to live. Secondly, you have the affordability gap. It costs a lot of money to get into these single-family houses from a down, pay down payment perspective. Additionally, you have a rise in interest rate, so it's, the debt is even higher, so you can't borrow as much. You can't live in as uh, big of a house. So what you have is these people 
need a place to live again. And so they stay in your properties, right? So you have even increased demand. Um, and then from a construction standpoint, I mean, we are under, we've undersupplied the market for many, many years and it started back in the, in the, in the crash and, and we haven't been able to keep up. And now even with the COVID challenges that created another, uh, some more friction in, in, in the process. And then even now hearing these stories of developers trying to get permits and the backlog you have in the, in the planning commission department and all these municipalities has created even more friction. So it's going to be even fewer properties that can be built over time to meet the demand. So that inherently creates another increase in value of these properties. And so from a recessionary standpoint, multifamily is one of the best asset classes you, you, you would want to invest in uh, overall. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been in, you've been in it a lot longer than I have. I, I got in kind of in 2017. Um but when I think about it, you know, people have asked me that question. I'm like, you know, I think that if we go into recession, say, I mean, look, the, the big tech companies are laying people off now. Um, if I'm living in California and I get laid off, I'm going to be like, well, where can I find another job? And, you know, if, if it's on par in another market that is more affordable, I'm most likely going to move there. I mean, we've already seen... California people and companies have been moving to Texas and Arizona and, you know, other growth markets. But I think that that would continue in a recession that people are like, all right, I'm in a high cost market. I just lost my job. I, you know, I got to save money and I got to get another job. So that could help, you know, multifamily in growth markets. Um, you know, I, I don't know how it plays out for multifamily and non-growth markets, but that's something that I think about. I think about is that it could have continued population and and job and income growth in those markets. Correct, uh, absolutely. So the other thing you mentioned was inflation. You know, and and you know if there is inflation, right? Last year they were saying what eight nine percent inflation. You know. Well, like, well, if I have $100,000 and I put it in the bank and next year I have $100,000, I still have $100,000, right? Right. But if you could only buy $92,000 worth of goods, that's the part that people don't really get because it's inflation, it eats away at your purchasing power, but the dollars in the bank are still the same. So people feel like a sense of comfort that they've still got that and they haven't put it at risk. But what you really want to try to do is be in an investment that is going to return you more than an inflation rate. So the return is going to be above and beyond what inflation is. So what Ivan was talking about is, all right, if there's wage inflation, he already talked about it. He's, he's having challenges finding labor to do you know, the work at the properties, there's wage inflation, then people have more money. So in theory, they should be open to paying more for rent. And so that top line rent grows over time. But if you've locked in fixed financing, then your debt service is fixed. So the profitability will continue to increase. Absolutely. And you know, expenses do increase in inflationary environment as well, of course, right? But the sure. 
aggregate amount of the revenue increases a lot more than the aggregate amount of expenses. So you yeah, still- and what would you say? I mean, is is typical back of the envelope? Back of the envelope, I would say you know, rent. You know, rink income is one hundred percent. Expenses fifty percent. It's about operating. 100. I mean, right now, it's it used to be around 40%. It's creeping up to 50% tile range, right? So, it, right. So if your top, your ex- total expenses are 50% and your revenue is 100%, and then, then the revenue, if they both grow at the same percentage, your profitability should increase. Still that, right. You're still, have, you're still profitable. Yeah. In, in theory. And it, 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 it is. Other than, you know, you have to watch out the debt piece and manage that debt piece, right? And you have to make sure you fix that interest rate or find a way to mitigate your downside risk in a rising interest rate environment. All right. So you brought up, you brought up a tough one. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, rates, I mean, and, and yeah. debt. There are a bunch of people that are in floating rate debt. And so the Fed just got done with their, you know, record seven interest rate increases last year um, went up like crazy from like a quarter percent to a half percent to a range of like about four and a quarter, four and a half um, in one year. And so people that own apartments are getting hurt not only on the, the fact that their floating rate debt is going up, but an even bigger impact that I'm hearing from syndicators now is fact that lenders are starting to require them to reserve for future interest rate caps. And that, like, I'm in a lot of deals, you know, as a passive and as a GP, and I'm sure you've seen it. It's not like it's a 10 or 20% increase. Like your monthly payment to the lender could go from, you know, three, four times, five times what you were paying before. Because now they're wanting you to escrow for a future interest rate cap. Correct. Escrow for a future interest rate cap. Um, you know, they're looking at the forward curve. We do think, for, you know, depending on where your renewal happens, the lender most likely will require 12 to 15 months prior to the renewal for you to start escrowing for that upcoming renewal based upon what they see the rates, the curve, where it's at at that moment in time, 12 to 15 months uh, months prior so you know but high level these renewals cost 800 to a million dollars you know and you're looking around 60 to 100k per month escrow that you're gonna have to put away that's that's the challenge and so a lot of sponsors are looking at refi options exit options recap options and that has created, you know, of course, friction in, in, in the market. And all I can say is understand the details, even if you're a passive, a passive, understand the details of what is going on. Make sure you understand yourself, what your all-in rate was going in, what your strike um, percentage is, and when the renewal cap is. And see if the sponsor is thinking through ways to mitigate those crunch points that are, are going to occur in the system because i mean 100k extra on top of your debt service obviously you're in a negative cash flow environment right and then if you don't understand the runway available meaning what is in your capital reserves it, it could get ugly in a hurry um and so i mean that's the reality 
And it's unfortunate. And again, the smartest of smartest people, no one saw that the Fed was going to, maybe they're probably out there, but I didn't, you know, the consensus was at the time, it wasn't going to go up as rapid as we experienced, right? Right. And so some of the points you just brought up, one is looking at, okay, how much cash does the property have, you know, to, to pay the, you know, the additional escrow. Um, and then another thing to consider is that, you know, these are escrows, they're not actual interest payments. So if the, the property has the runway, you know, with the cash, then, you know, six months or a year from now, escrow caps may be priced completely different. And then, you know, those reserves may be, you know, over-reserved and be able to be released. But there's no guarantee that that's going to be the case, right? Correct. You, exactly. You're, you're planning on worst-case scenario, and of course, that's what any lender would do. But one other key uh, piece here is understand if you have an existing cap and you have time left on your cap, say a year, you can sell that cap. Right, you can sell it as as a value. Understand what that value is and play that into the overall capital stack, the the recap or whatever um, play you're going to exercise. But understand what that value is, and so typically for a year, so far anywhere from if you have a year to go. I mean, last I looked, maybe around eight hundred to a million uh, is the value of, of 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 the cap that I saw. So. Um, at the time of this recording. So understand that piece and that, that will play out into the overall equation and what the fix is going to be. Yeah. I've had somebody that said that they, because they're, um, they were required to, to uh, put so much into to escrow. They actually, to your point, they had, you know, value in the existing cap that they had. And what they did was go back to the lender and extended the existing cap. So they paid a they're paying a higher, you know, they went went from a lower cap to a higher cap, but they extended it out for another year or two. And, you know, in in that regard, then they didn't have to, you know, put up as much in the reserves. Um, and so in the escrows. So that's you know another option as well. Um, but that's a big cash crunch that was unexpected that a lot of syndicators are working through right now. Anybody that has floating rate debt and has an interest rate cap, they're trying to figure that out. And, you know, how do, we, how do we make this work? You know, the property could have been uh, performing fantastic, you know, otherwise. Um, and then this curveball comes in and, you know, just like you said, it's not always a straight line up. There's different challenges to work through, and this is one of them in today's market. Yeah, absolutely. And I can understand the challenge of being removed from an investment as a passive investor and the type of perspective that that would create. So, And I respect that because at the end of the day, you're a passive investor, why do you need to be in the weeds and understand all these interworkings of the things going on that I've been talking about? However, um, I would just emphasize maybe have some time set aside to absorb some of this information. Hopefully your sponsor is doing a good job communicating what is going on, 
what their course of action is going to be so that you can just understand and know what what is going in on our side and what we're going through you know at this point in time that way you can understand what the course of action is right to help you out overall and be part of that process that solution process overall yeah because i mean look it's confusing i'm in the industry and all of a sudden you get an email saying you know hey our we're stopping distributions and our you know, our payments to the lender are going from 20K to 70K. Like, you're like, what? How the heck can that happen? And so I understand it from because I'm in the industry, but if I'm a passive and I'm not in the industry and I just parked money in there, I'm like, holy cow, I don't understand how you can, your payment can, you know, go three times, four times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the point is to try to understand what is going on. Hey, talk about, how you guys, um, how do you attract passive investors? Do you do it uh, word of mouth? Do you do it from meetup groups? You know, do you do it from online? You know, how do you, how do you build that investor database? Great question. Um, building relationships is a way of life, right? And these days we could build relationships not only physical means, digital means. So I'm smashing the gas pedal in every avenue I can take <laughs> to build relationships and effectively and efficiently. And that may not mean mass. I may mean uh, a level where I can have meaningful relationships and powerful relationships as well. And we have team members on, on our staff and our team to help that without that process. But to answer the question, all the digital means, right? I'm on this podcast as a way for... Um, for me to get our message out, starting having starting our own podcast, we have plenty of social media marketing that is going on. Tomorrow night, I'm hosting a meetup downtown in Oklahoma City. Uh, I go to very. I go. I feel like I'm always. I feel like a. What do you call it? I'm a, a rock star in a different city <laughs> in a different month. And I was like, I'm on the circuit, and I always say to the person, like, I'll see you on the circuit. Sure. You're gonna find him in the next event, right? And so you go to those conferences. Um, ideally if you get on stage, get your name called to be on stage, uh, is one way to do it, but come to find out you have to pay to play on those stages too, which they don't share that with you, but right. I'm not paying to play. <laughs> I'll build my own stage eventually. But, um, so yeah, you know, that's a lot of how it works, but you know, then there's that organic method. And the, the, the other thing that I respect is which I do my best, honestly, I do my best to make sure that this happens is to take, take care of home base is how you grow and take care of the ones you have. Um, and the team that the, the partners you have today, I, again, I don't always get it right. I do my best. We're always improving the investor experience. We're working on trying to improve the end to end investor experience, right? So to make it seamless and frictionless as possible. What does that look like? I have a back-end support team so that we don't have any email that goes uncovered, unanswered. Any action that needs to happen, we can get it resolved quickly on a K-1 issue or tax issue or whatever issue it may be. Things like that. You can show care and concern for people's investments in your deals and that show your investors you're investing in your support staff to support them. I think that's how you grow as well. And no better marketing than the word of mouth. You can take care of home base, then they'll take care of you eventually over time. Absolutely. Um, I, I've talked to countless uh, syndicators that have, have 
talked about how, you know, when they've been successful on one deal and the next deal they come back and then they bring, you know, one or two other people and then mm -hmm. it continues to snowball like that. Um, but, you know, doing all those other avenues that you're doing, like, like you said, you're running around the, the show. Sometimes, I don't know if your experience is this way, but sometimes what I found is, you know, you're planting different seeds and you're trying to, you know, help educate other different, different people. And it may take a number of times, you know, and, and somebody may come to you that you didn't even know was paying attention. and was like, you know, hey, Ivan, man, I've, I've seen you like, you know, you're on social media and I've seen you having these meetups and, and I think I'm ready now. Like, and I've been watching for the last couple of years and like, now I'm ready. And you don't even realize that that's going on, you know? 100%. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I don't know if, you know, don't uh, judge your street credibility by how many social media likes you got, right? Right, right. <laughs> like, they're there in the passing, you know, and you're, people come out of the woodwork, especially when a deal hits the streets and you have a smoking deal. And, and that's when reward comes, right? Um, and so this is really the to encourage those like myself that are going through this phase of trying to build out their social media platform, build out the investor database, double down on your back end support systems for you. But like it all pays off over time. And, and I think as long as you have a long game mindset, like a relationship should be long game. You, I mean, that's, that's, this is definitely a long game mindset, life, right? right? Like, you know, you it takes a while to build invest in people and, yep over time and building relationships and, you, and it, no like and trust and that trust piece takes time, it, it does pay off. I've, and I've had many times people call me out of the blue and like, oh my, and they're like, yeah, I've been watching on social media. Like, really? Oh, okay. Like, I've right. seen you. I had a call today with someone like, yeah, I've been seeing you for the past year. And like, it was one call, but it was rewarding because. And they may not have liked or commented exactly. on one post ever. Right. Like you had no idea that that person was even paying attention. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so in any event, um, hey, what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Man, that's a great question. <laughs> Come on lot. now. You got a family. I love, what, what, I love how a many lot kids? Um, I love food. I love good food. I love crafty farm to table kind of stuff. I love crafty cocktail drinks. I just, I love uh, going to places and understanding the culture and history of what goes into the food that you eat. We went on a family trip to Spain. It was one of my dreams to take my family on Spain once I retired. And last summer we went to Spain and, and listen, we, we hired guys to unpack the history behind the, each of these little villages and towns we went in. And, and, and I, played over into the food that we ate, man. It was just an incredible experience, man. We went to running the bulls. Oh, wow. And How, what ages? Oh, it's, uh, yeah, they were uh, 14, uh, nine and six at the time. And uh, honestly, I was so heads down business. I didn't even know you had to have special clothes. My wife did some research and realized you got to have a white shirt and red, red scarf and you got to show up in, to this event. And I thought you'd just show up and look at bulls. Well, I take my boys to this uh, Pamplona where the running of the bulls is and uh, the bus drives us from the hotel to downtown and we get off the bus and it's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people and there's like these huge like rave party going on like 
people flying around and like everyone's <laughs> drunk and having a good time. I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into with my kids? Oh right. God, you know, it's like, yep, parenting foul right here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we were here and you know what? It was awesome. My boys embraced it. We didn't run in the bulls. I didn't you, want to. You just, did or didn't? Did not. Didn't want to. Right. They were too young. I think yeah. they're still too young. My oldest, maybe next year can do it. But we, we rented a balcony. Uh, Watched them come through. Look down over the balcony. And it's crazy. You get up like first thing about crack of dawn and you got to be at the balcony like seven in the morning. And there's all this hype. And then like, <laughs> and it's I, over I, like 45 seconds. You're like, what? It's <laughs> like the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, you know? I was like, that's it. Yeah. Okay, you know, but uh, man, I love you know. I uh, just um, I love to travel, and I I'm, I love the outdoor. I grew up in Oregon, and and you know, my dad used to take me out fishing. I didn't, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought. I, I don't know why, being, but I thought you were always in Oklahoma. Yeah, I grew up in Oregon. And I love you know, and kind of grew up in the woods, man. Like out fishing and camping, and with like middle of nowhere kind of experiences as a kid. So I still got a lot of that in my blood. It's a little little tough out here in Oklahoma with fewer trees and brown water versus blue water, but we still find a way to make it happen. <laughs> well, Tariq is a big hunt, hunter. I don't know if you're in that hunting oh, too, if you guys he go got me into together. It. He got you into oh it? Oh my God, I'm so hooked. And it's like one of my passions now. And he he took me to South Africa on an amazing, incredible- Holy cow, you went with experience. him? He told me about going to South Africa. It was amazing. He, I, you know, just to be out in the wild and see nature in and of itself was just a, an amazing treat. Had an amazing time. That, that's awesome. Um, so, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. Uh, reach us at unlockwealthpotential.com. Unlockwealthpotential.com. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, listeners, you heard that unlockwealthpotential.com. Uh, look these guys up. Uh, good guys, and they're doing big things. And um, highly encourage. You look them up and uh, go from there. So I hope you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 